0: This is an eavesdropping podcast. I'm Juliet Fraser and I'm sitting here in the chapel with Jennifer Walsh. Hi, Jen.
1: Hi, Juliet. Thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, my pleasure. It's really nice to be in here with you. Um, So for listeners that don't know you and your work, um, can you tell us a bit about yourself?
1: I'm a composer and a performer, but I do work which sort of spreads across into lots of different disciplines. Sometimes I write for orchestra or for string quartet. Sometimes I do a lot of free improvisation. Um, I also do work in galleries or museums, and I've done everything from a completely fictional history of Irish avant-garde music to uh, a project with Memo Acton where we trained a neural network on videos of me performing Mm -hmm. so that I could perform with an artificially intelligent version of myself.
0: (laughs) Was that a bit threatening?
1: (laughs) It was an extremely interesting project because if you think of all of us, we're all creating so much data every single Mm -hmm. microsecond of the day um, and we're giving that data away for free. And so in order to train any neural network, we have to create a huge amount of data. That's what the networks need. And so I had to go through that sort of almost tawdry experience of being alone in a room for a year, creating these videos and improvising and seeing my own weird habits and tics and um, having to come face-to-face with that sort of cliff, cliff wall of solo-free improvisation in order to make all the data that the network would be trained on.
0: And I came to see your recent opera, that is what you call it, Time, 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 um, which I absolutely loved in London Contemporary Music Festival. Um, can you tell us a bit about how, how that evolved and some of the partnerships that, that are within it?
1: Well, it's well. Thanks very much for coming, and <laughs> thanks for thanks for your kind words. Um, time, time, time was. With- was a project that's very close to my heart Mm. so it was a project that I developed initially with um, Timothy Morton the philosopher uh, because I was interested in making I wanted to make a big piece about time and that had been something for quite a while I'd been interested in making lots of little notes here and there and then Tim and I met and we sort of hit it off and in one of those sort of I hope I I can say now it was an inspired, an inspired (laughs) impulse, but at the time felt very like, we should make this piece together, you know, in the hotel bar at three o'clock in the morning. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: But I I try to follow those instincts that I have. I think Mm -hmm. it's very important when you, even if you don't know somebody very well, if you sort of just think, I think this could be good you know, and I think we could do this thing together and that this is the right person mm. for this project with me. So I had read Tim's work. We'd Skyped prior to meeting in, in, in person, but uh, it was when we met and hung out for several days at Gong Tomorrow Festival in Copenhagen that we hit it off. And I thought, I think he's the right guy for this piece. So um, once I knew that I would be working with him and that we would be developing this project together. The next part was to try and make a team of musicians. And because the opera is about time, it felt very important to me that um, while, how can I put it? So while the work itself has a score, you know, and there's, some very tightly notated musical notation and some much looser Mm. um, concepts and gestures or folders of material contained within the the sort of score package. Um, It was very important to me that I be working with people who were highly, highly skilled free improvisers Mm. so that they could react in real time to what was happening in the space. So, I mean, sometimes when I'm saying they're reacting, some of these reactions are like subconscious or they're maybe on the microsecond level. They're, yeah. they're very, very small um, small sort of changes. And then some of them can be quite big. So the, the work is designed to work with people who know how to build things in time, yeah. in real time together. And, and those are free improvisers. So whole great, great, the nicest team of people you could imagine, <sighs> uh, you know, MC Schmidt, Anya O'Dwyer and Lee Patterson all of whom I'd worked with before or I'd met before and then two Norwegian duos, uh, Strife and Junko, that's Espen and Ivan and Vilda and Inga, who I hadn't met prior to the project oh, right. and were recommended to me and I listened to their work and I thought it was really excellent. So we all really bonded as a team musically. So that was really fantastic. Uh,
0: I'm interested actually in how how much of your work you feel is fed by collaboration because I I know that there's there's a lot of your work that's really just you doing your own thing, writing for your or creating for your own voice and building these different personas. But um, so, do, do the two kind of work together, or do they not feel like like a like a binary, to a me, binary force?
1: To me, they feel parts of the same impulse, mm-hmm. which is when I'm working by myself and I'm creating lots of different alter egos, like that's a way of working with other people, (laughs) you know, (laughs) Um, it's a way of creating a a family. It's a way of creating a whole sort of peer group or cohort or community that, that I'm responding to and with, even if it's imaginary. Mm. Um, I certainly think, you know, I remember I was on the jury for a residency and one of the composers wrote in their application the part of being a composer i like the least is being alone in a room mm. and i think i think i like i do like the time alone in the room and i need the time for quiet thinking and really focused thinking but there's something pretty magic that happens you know when you're in a space with people yeah. and the it's sort of it's it's interesting to me cuz you know the the standard model of composition has always been that or particularly, you know, at least over the last and more recent history, the, the standard model is that the composer is the author of the work. Mm. And that's that functions in like a legal sense, in that they own the royalties mm. to the performance. They receive the commission fee. They receive 100% of the commission fee. They receive the radio returns, you know, so stru- like sort of structurally and legally and administratively, they're the author of the work. In in an artistic sense, it also means they're supposed to be alone in a room Mm -hmm. and they write this work. And, you know, I often see young composers, especially when I went to Darmstadt when I was young, producing the score. Mm -hmm. And and the idea was that you looked at the score while you listened to the recording because the score was still, you know, the true meaning of what the piece was rather than the recording. And it seems, on the one hand, ludicrous to me because in any, like if you think of dance or theatre or film... The idea that, like, somebody would make this perfect description of the piece before anybody walked in the room together. Yeah. You know, and that somehow the performers would then execute it perfectly. (laughs) That's ludicrous, you know, Mm -hmm. even if you have a script, you get the version of the script that's the shooting script that they sort of say, okay, now we're just going to actually shoot the movie. But they understand there'll be changes. Mm -hmm. They'll they'll have to go back and maybe reshoot some scenes or that this scene didn't work the way it would and it's going to have to be re-edited. And so I think that that aspect of composition, which some composers love, they just want to be alone and think up this perfect form in time Mm. and they just want to be alone in the room and do that but I think while that can have its value you know and does have its value I think that it's sort of a shame in that people are people to me first and foremost so when I'm thinking of a person who's a musician, I'm thinking of them as a person first and I'm thinking of their instrument second. Yeah. You know, rather than they're a sort of a generic trombonist, you know, or a yeah. generic flautist who uses electronics or something like that. Yes. So, so I don't want to lose that. composers it's generally and i'm sure you've had many experiences with composers who work on pieces with you saying what can you do with your voice you know things like that so so i think that it's i like the expanded version of that where i'm also thinking about the whole person but that's me it's a different type of orchestration
0: well i prefer that too that's i think increasingly that's what i'm looking for but i i have come to realize that there are some people that can work like that and some people that can't as you say and for me i think i have part of the art is trying to recognize which composers to commission in what sort of way you know which which composers to tease into a more collaborative relationship and which just leave them in their room to write it that's you know it's no
1: i'm not i'm not sort of judging anybody who wants to stay in their room and just work it's it's um i suppose it's a recognition in myself in that like i enjoy that Mm. and and i have to say it takes time to learn how to collaborate with people um i i i'm a I'm a professor at the Hochschule in, in Stuttgart, the University of the Performing Arts. And last week a colleague asked me to 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 sit in on a on a composition student's rehearsal. And he was sort of having a, a problem in sort of directing the musicians. And it was clear like he he wasn't getting what he wanted and the musicians were feeling a little bit vulnerable and fragile. And we worked with him. And the second we worked with him, he was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And he figured out how to tell them what he wanted, how to direct them, you know, and it it was a simple thing, you know, but it's just he wasn't used to, well, how do you direct musicians? How do you figure out, you know, how to tell them how to do things the way that you'd like them to be done? How How do you sort of manage a rehearsal so that the musicians feel things are being done efficiently? Yeah,
0: very interesting, all this. I suppose the point is that we have to learn all these skills and that's not necessarily what one thinks of as being a key part of being a performer. I don't know how much that is discussed at conservatory level, for example, but it's absolutely crucial, isn't it, to the stage of actually bringing the work to life, to making that transition from, from score to performance.
1: It's, it's interesting because coming up to Christmas... There were so many articles about, you know, the end of the second decade of the 20th century and what has the last 10 years of classical music or pop music or film or books been like. And I sat down and I wrote out this little list because I was trying to think, okay, 2000, 2010, 2020, what were the huge shifts across those years for me um, in terms of my work or how I think about my work? And I think one of the biggest shifts that I've seen is composers want to make shows now. Hmm. So composers it used to be like definitely in 2000 composers wrote chamber works with the aspiration to you know get an orchestral commission or do an opera. Yeah. But also the understanding that the operas might not cycle around you know, maybe only five or seven years, you know, between your operas yeah. and because um, they're big projects. It's
0: still quite ambitious. It's still quite <laughs> ambitious.
1: Or, you know, the orchestral commissions weren't, you weren't going to get one of those every week, yeah. but you hoped that that would happen. But people weren't generally talking about pieces that were like 30 minutes long or 60 minutes long. Yeah. They were talking in the sort of five, three to five minute range, the 10 to 12 minute range, and then the 15 to 20 minute range. Yeah. And I remember seeing a prese- presentation James Saunders did where he, he like analysed uh, the British Music Information Centre's holdings by duration. Oh, right. Yeah, and so he was saying, well, there's loads and loads of pieces that are three minutes long, but that's because there's loads of hymns. There's loads of like functional church music. And and he was saying it locks out at these durations. Um, And unless you were sort of trying to be Morton Feldman, you you know, unless it was sort of almost a conceptual decision that you were going to write an 80 minute long piece, um, composers weren't doing that. And there's been a massive shift between then and now, not just in terms of, Like, I think composers write pieces, they aspire to write shows, Mm -hmm. they want to use video, they want to use lighting. Um, Contemporary music ensembles dress in a very different way than they did 10 years or 20 years ago. Um, The music is disseminated in a really different way. And so I sort of... Like, I'm a professor of experimental performance. (laughs) And so this is sort of what I see is this is like young, young artists sort of wanting to put on a show, but they're not really sure what it means that it's a show rather than a composition anymore or using video and, and figuring out, well, how do you use video? Is there a sort of a received syntax? So it's sort of I think a lot of these skills, younger composers now are being faced with trying to figure out, well, how do we do these things? Because they're not thinking in terms of a piece for 10 minutes long and it's for flute and piano. Mm. They're, they're wanting to think on these broader scales of video, lighting, costume, or just some sort of performative elements. Mm. So that's, that's who I often end up trying to, trying help. to help.
0: Yeah, <laughs> midwife. midwife to this new, new sort of performance. Can you tell us a bit, Jen, about what you're working on at the moment? And you can, you can give us some hints if you like of what you might be presenting for your eavesdropping set or um it can remain a mystery as you like
1: i'm i'm happy to to tell you (laughs) so i i've taken the idea that it's work in progress very literally great we like so i i feel i'm i'm bringing in something to really one thing that's more finished Mm -hmm. and then one thing to sort of test out great so i'm excited about that so um at the at the moment as we said at the start very interested in artificial intelligence mm. and so what i want to present on on a friday are three things the first one is a very short piece um, and the text for that piece was all generated by a neural network so it's me singing text and having to learn how to inhabit text you know and just sort of regard it as poetry and the the network was trained on my collect my own private um archives of text this so that's, archive
0: that you mentioned earlier that you built up over, over no your, different okay. different archives <laughs> yes, different, <another> one. <laughs> like a textual archive okay. so so
1: it's sort of it was very interesting to me because i was able to sort of see what the Ner- network sort of saw in my archive and what it spat back to me and then hmm. my job was to sort of go in and say okay well this is this is very weird, garbled text, and I have to pick out bits that I think are interesting and treat it as if it's Gertrude Stein, okay. you know, and just commit and find, find yeah. the poetry in it. So I'm gonna be doing that just to sort of give the audience a taster of what it's like live to sort of be singing something that you know a human didn't make. Yeah. Um, and then I wanna present two projects, one of which will be released next month. It's a cassette and digital release called A Late Anthology of Early Music. And so, it's. I
0: love your title. Well,
1: I, I'm I'm curious what you will make of it, Uh, because, so when I was a, when I was, I did my uh, doctorate in America, Northwestern University, and, you know, I had to teach an awful lot of classes. at Northwestern, and it was great because that's how I paid. You know, that's they paid me a wee little teaching assistantship a salary to teach, and I managed not to come away with any debt. Yeah. But I had to teach the sort of classes that the other professors just didn't want to teach, and they, you know, made us teach them. So I had to teach the history of Western music, <laughs> and the history of Western music went. Um, we started in September with ancient Greece. You know like several thousand years BC, <laughs> and then we ended in June with today.
0: I love it. <laughs> and so
1: you were just going at this ridiculous pace. But what was particularly bizarre was that the closer you came to the current day, the slower the history moved. Yeah. So between, for the first term, so we're talking like 10, 11 weeks, you had to go from ancient Greece to the end of the Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> right? So you're talking like... Over a thousand years of music history, you know, <laughs> over a hundred years of music history per week. Do, do you know, you're sort of just like battling through it really <laughs> rapidly. Or, um, And so, what I was interested in was this, my students hated the class. They all hated it. They found it very difficult to tell the difference between Gregorian chant and is it this type of motet? Oh. Is it a Franconian motet or is it by Michaud or oh. Dufay or Dunstable? Or, you know, it was so much vocal music. Yes. And the textbooks had this really clear through line, which was Gregorian chant happened, which was exquisite. And then Western music just unfolded from Gregorian chant with this unerring logic. So yes. the melismatic parts of the chant were stretched out and turned into organum, yeah. And then organum had an extra part in it and they became a motet. And then, yeah. you know, we got Palestrina. So we had to sort of really try to keep the students on this, this story you know where yeah. we would say this is how it happened and yes most of the music you're going to listen to is all religious because they were the people who had enough money to write things down yeah. you know so um i've left that in the past like <laughs> days teaching mu212 intro to uh, history of western music um but uh the year before last, I was in contact with Databots, who are these two guys, CJ and Zach, um, who do a lot of really interesting AI projects. And they, they trained their network on my solo, vocal material. And then they sent me these 841 files. That was 40 training epochs, so like 40 generations, of their network learning um, to imitate me. Oh my goodness. So it's very interesting because the first file they sent is just like, oh, <laughs> and it's just this like slightly distorted length, lo- like long note long for one time. minute. And it's like, oh, the network's warming up. And, and by the end of it, it's going like, oh, and it sounds and like it me sounds like improvising. You. So I thought this was completely fascinating because often what people see is the end result. They yeah. see the perfect output, but they don't see this evolution of the training. Yeah. So I took... 17 key pieces from the history of, of, uh, Western music. Um, and I sort of used the machine learning as a filter to listen to history and the history as a filter to listen to machine learning. So they're all covers of like Peritan and Dunstable <laughs> and Palestrina oh, and on so and show. <laughs> so it will be, um, released on cassette next month, but I Excellent. thought that I would start by just sort of Playing just a few very short excerpts from uh, different, from different uh, different bits, just to see what people make of them. That's you know. very exciting
0: indeed. Yeah. So um, and the release is called a late history of early a music. late
1: history. Oh, sorry, a late anthology, a late anthology of anthology. early music. Yeah. Okay. So it'll be out. There's, uh, yeah, I'm excited about. Yeah, that. you look excited. That's yeah, great. Yeah.
0: <laughs> And is there
1: one other piece that you're presenting? Yep. Is that right? Still so, there's, so I'll, I'll
0: talk it's about... It's so dense, I love
1: it. Well, I, I just thought I've got all these people and I want to use it as an opportunity because yeah. this to me is quite unique mm-hmm. series that you do because rather than saying to people, okay, just come along and do your standard set, and then that's the end. It's an actual, it's a real luxury to be able to show work and just chat with people Good. about it, you know, and the this space, Oxford House, I think is really conducive mm-hmm. to that sort of more um, formal informality, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, um, that that is one thing, again, I think that, I know Matthew Slomowitz is a friend of yours and a friend of mine here in London that we talk about a lot, that it, we feel it's a shame that composers often don't share their work with other people mm. or or sort of when they're in when they're alone in the room working they're alone in the room and nobody really knows it's like a black box <laughs> of creative creative uh, work and again while lots of people work that way and that's great i do love sharing work and i love mm. getting feedback and i love people saying that bit worked for me that bit i don't know what the hell you're doing <laughs> and i can choose whether to yeah that's it well, you yeah. know whether to mm. you know whether to change things or not change things but it's really good to have An understanding of how the the work breathes in Mm. the space you know so um so the other thing that I'll do is there's a book that I'm working on at the moment um it's all about artificial intelligence it's sort of a combination of brief tiny short stories and weird poems and than me doing things like feeding the last section of um, James Joyce's uh, Ulysses into a network and seeing how it extends the end of Molly's <laughs> Molly's uh, soliloquy. So uh, I I'm excited to read some excerpts from that and see what people make of that.
0: This sounds like a great mix. We've got all sorts of we've got three well at least three Jennies. I aim to coming please. Along really. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me. Oh,
1: thanks very much, Juliet, for the invitation. Yeah,
0: it's my pleasure. It's great to hear. It's great for me just to hear what you're up to at the moment. And um, yeah, I can't wait to... Looking forward hear what very you're presenting. much. Thanks. Thanks.